following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would turn to Ruth 4, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to tackle the first 15 verses today of Ruth Four, which will only leave uh, just a few, seven, I think, for next week. Um, we're coming down to the end of an eight-week sermon series through Ruth. I've had a blast. Uh, I hope you have too. And, and just in case you're joining us today for the first time, you're jumping in here towards the end, I'll, I'll do my best to give you a succinct summary so you're not totally lost in case you haven't read the book. So the book of Ruth begins with a man named Elimelech taking his family to Moab. So they leave Bethlehem and they go, the land of Israel, they go to Moab trying to avoid famine. Uh, there, he and both of his sons die. So that leaves Naomi and the two daughters that had married those sons. That was Orpah and Ruth. Orpah stays in Moab. Ruth goes back to Bethlehem with Naomi. Uh, the way they survive is Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. The Bible says she just so happens a bit tongue-in-cheek, to end up in the field of Boaz. They start to get to know each other. Come to find out Boaz also just so happens to be a kinsman redeemer, a goel. This is a big theme throughout the book. And what that means is, because Ruth was a widow built into the law, uh, there was this opportunity for them to be redeemed. And so a close relative could marry the widow and raise up children in the name of the deceased man, brother or close relative, And that was a way for God to protect the lineage and the legacy of families. And it also had to do with the fact that the land of Israel was divided between families. And so God had built into that system ways for those things to be preserved. So you didn't end up with, you know, two families in Israel being a mega monopoly of all the land, uh, which was not God's will. Okay, so, amen. Uh, And then, so Ruth finds that out. Naomi tells her, hey, Boaz is at the threshing floor. We find Boaz sleeping uh, at a heap of grain. Ruth comes and proposes, basically tells him, I would like you to walk in that responsibility of kinsman redeemer to me. And he tells her, "Uh, I'm going to do that. But first I got to go talk to this guy because there's a relative closer than me. Okay. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're going to see Boaz head to the city gate to handle this business that he promised he would. Amen. So I hope you found Ruth for, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 together, as I said. If you don't have a Bible or an app with you, we will have the verses on the screen. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, please let us know. One of our favorite things to do is give those away for free. Okay? Here we go. Ruth 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who's come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know for there's no one but you to redeem and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption of the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whose Tamar, who Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Praise God for his word. I know that's a lot of verses, but we've broken Ruth up even farther than, than most do that tackle it. So, uh, and, and there's really, there's, there's a lot here, but there's, there's a few things that we can focus on. So uh, if you didn't bring a granola bar, don't worry. I'll have you out in time to eat before you pass out, okay? Amen. I think. <laughs> I mean, we're just getting started. You can't totally hold me to that. Anyways, uh, first off, normally I weave these in a little later in the sermon. I kind of butter you up, maybe try to make you laugh first, but I'm just going to go for the jugular right here off the rip, okay? So we're going to start with a pop quiz. Uh, Pop quiz, I want to know if you were paying close enough attention as I read that. Here's the pop quiz. You ready? What is the name of the closer relative? The closer relative, the one before Boaz. I see a couple heads shaking. I realize when I do these, that a verbal answer is, is the equivalent of, you know, maybe the scariest thing on planet earth for some people, and that's fine. So a couple of people are shaking their head. That's right. The answer is, we don't know. We don't get his name. No one knows his name. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why Boaz's name is known. There's a re- reason why Ruth's name is known. And this guy fell into the cracks of obscurity. Now, Deuteronomy 25, this is where the law was laid out for how this process would work. Remember how it said in, in older times there was this process where the sandal comes off and all that? What, what Deuteronomy 25 actually says is this guy, this, this closer relative, this other fella, it actually says that if he refuses, like he did, to walk in that responsibility as the kinsman redeemer, she, not, not he was supposed to take his sandal off, she was supposed to take his sandal off and spit in his face Yeah, go read it. Deuteronomy 25, make yourself a note. Is he making that up? No, man, it's right there. Go find it. If he refused to take his responsibility as the Goel, she's supposed to pull off his sandal and spit in his face and tell everybody at the gate, all the elders, this guy is not doing what the law is calling for him to do. Hmm. Now, it's not clear. There's some application there. I'm going to leave you to figure it out. (laughs) 
It's not clear why this didn't happen here. It's not, it's not explained for us. There, there are some that have proposed. So why didn't Ruth come up and just, oh, this guy, right? Uh, well, I've never heard a preacher hawk a loogie in the mic. Well, now you have, right? First time for everything. Amen. <laughs> we don't know exactly why she didn't come spit in his face. Some have proposed that it's, it's because the way this went down, that Boaz was, was ready and willing to, to, he'd already explained that, that he was waiting there ready, so there was really no dishonor to Ruth or Malon, uh, which was her dead husband, okay? So that, that, that may be it. It seems likely that's the case. There wasn't a need for all of that. And, and the reality is, we can imagine Ruth and Naomi kind of standing to the outside of this meeting, listening in, and when the man said, I will redeem it, you can imagine their hearts drop into their stomach. That was not what they were hoping for, right? They were hoping for Boaz, for all of the reasons we've talked about thus far about Boaz's character up to this point in the book. Amen? So, and you may be wondering, what's, what's the deal with the sandal? What, you know, because some of you, you know, I'm going to pre, I got a bunch of fire the rest through the sermon, and some of you will be sitting there thinking the whole time, what is the deal with sandals? And like, why would you make a deal like that? That's so weird. So I'm going to, let's just take a crack at it, okay? Again, not totally clear. <laughs> I see some of you smiling because you know you're that person. Like that little detail would just have you rabbit trailed the whole time. And I love that about you. I love all of you Bible nerds because I am one. We're friends, okay? Amen. Uh, but what is the deal with the sandal? Again, not totally laid out and explained for us, but there's, there's a good chance it has to do with the way God talked to the children of Israel about coming into the land of Canaan and taking possession of it. Let me read you Joshua 1 verse 2 and 3. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Okay, so now Joshua's being raised up as the leader. So now arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot steps, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. So it's very possible that the words of God to his people as they crossed into the promised land were remembered, and that's why when it was, came down to deals about land and things of that nature, uh, guys started taking off their sandals and handing them to each other, okay? So not something God commanded, just, you know, became a tradition, basically. And look, I, I realize that's kind of weird, but if I'm just being honest, that's easier than going finding a notary to sign a piece of paper. So, like, I'm a fan of bringing it back, you know, because uh, sometimes it's annoying, man. What if you want to buy something on a Sunday, you know, they can't find a notary? Amen. We should be, cool. you know, I could be able to hand you my sandal. This is, yeah, we know, this is good. Amen. Deal done, right? <clears throat> uh, it's also not explained to us, doesn't go into detail. You know, the man says, I'll redeem it. And then, and then uh, Boaz says, well, Ruth comes with it. And he's like, oh, well, I can't redeem it. That complicates, it, it jeopardizes is the word he uses, my inheritance. We don't know exactly why this complicated his own inheritance. There could be lots of reasons. He could already have adult sons. Some of his land could have already been distributed he doesn't say this, but he may already have a wife at home. And, and how many of you wives know that that would be complicated if he brought another wife home? <laughs> Let's say amen, right? So I don't know, right? Um, but whatever, so there may be some legitimacy to what he's saying, but uh, still, it's, this is a very, you know, Bethlehem's a small place at this point. It's, it's unlikely that Boaz really said, uh, hey, friend, or hey, so-and-so. He probably knew the guy's name. His name was probably mentioned, but there's a reason why uh, this guy's name falls into obscurity. Because th there's, there is this idea, there's this 
this pointing to the beauty of Boaz walking in this responsibility, taking the risk that he is, taking on the reality that Ruth is a, a Moabite, taking on the reality that to bring her in now takes all that was his and makes it hers without her doing much of anything to earn it. Yeah. Some bells should be ringing. Some gospel bells should be ringing. Amen? Don't worry, I'm going to ring them way harder here in a minute. If, if you didn't get it yet, you will. So we don't know why it was complicated, but we, we, we do see a principle here, okay? And this principle, it echoes through all of the scriptures and it summarizes the call of God upon those who belong to him. What we see in this other, this closer relative, the, the fellow was really keen, wasn't he, to be the kinsman redeemer, right? Boaz comes and says, hey, Naomi's got this land she has to sell. He says, I'll do it. I'll redeem it. He was real keen. He was real excited as long as the only issue at hand was land. But as soon as the messiness of the fact that Ruth came along with the deal was revealed, he was out. And what do we see in that principle? What, what principle am I pointing to that is, is broad and it, it, it largely summarizes the call of God upon those who would follow him? That principle is that we are called to love people and to use things. We're called to love people and use things, but friends, we must be honest about ourselves. We have a terrible tendency to get this backwards, loving things and using people. He was very interested in the transaction when it was about acquiring some more land, another thing, another opportunity to create more wealth for his family, but when a, a person became involved, which brought all of the messiness that people bring, he was out quickly. This may have been some of the shrewdness of Boaz and the way he set the thing up, kind of laid out the land thing and then real quick dropped it on him in front of everybody. Decision needs to be made. You know, there may be something to the, it may be part of why uh, Boaz was a man of means, had some, some shrewdness about him. But in any case, uh, this man was, was not interested in the person, which is the very inverse of why Boaz is in the deal, you see. What I'm trying to paint for you is this picture of why this guy's name is forgotten, but most anybody that's seen a Bible has heard the name Boaz. You know about Boaz. You may, you may not know all the details, but you've probably heard his name, a name that has echoed down through the generations, and why is that? And I'm submitting to you that it's, it's, it comes down, all, boil it all the way down. When this man was presented with the problem of Naomi needing redemption, and the land was in play. He was excited about the thing, but couldn't be bothered with the person. Boaz was the very opposite. He was there that day because of Ruth, because he loved Ruth. The land was something he was willing to deal with as, as an aside, but really the reason he was there that day was because he loved that girl. Amen. And I said that this... <clears throat> This idea spreads broadly throughout the scriptures. We also see it summarized in, in the idea in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is the root of all evil. Right Now that's a particular thing, but let's be honest, that particular thing opens the door to us acquiring lots of other things, does it not? <laughs> it's kind of how that works. And so if loving God and loving people is the supreme command and the summary of the rest, I'm going to say that again. If you don't know what I mean, I want you to think about it more this week. 
If loving God and loving people is the supreme command and the summary of the rest of the commands, then disordered love is our biggest problem. Mm. It's not very hard to see how the love of money and pride dwell together in unity either. It's a pretty easy connection to make, which God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, some of you are guessing a trajectory here, and I could see some of you even maybe getting a little bit stoked because I'm talking about the love of money, and I'm talking about we're supposed to love people and use things, not use people and, and love things. And some of you, you're getting kind of excited because you're like, yeah, man, finally, you know, he's going he's gonna to talk about how corporate greed is such a huge problem. I hate corporate greed. Burn them, right? Get them, eat the rich and all that jazz, yeah? And sure, that's a, it's a, that's a legitimate example of this principle at play, but here's the problem with that in this particular context, with this particular preacher. It may be a valid example, but it's also... It'd be a great scapegoat to allow you to avoid looking at yourself in this moment. So, because I love you, and I'm the kind of guy that looks for you to leave here agitated by the love of God. Amen. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, okay, yes, corporate greed is an example, but now let's talk about you. Okay? We're not going to leave here shaking our pitchforks about Jeff Bezos and everybody else, okay? We're going to talk about you. Amen. Because, and now, Listen to me, man. Is, will you accept that this is true? We all need to grapple with the reality. We all do of how powerful the temptation is to fall prey to this inversion of loving things and using people. Look, can we be honest about this? It's, it's very easy to prefer things to people. Things are easy. Things can feed our egos and And we don't have to trouble ourselves with how they feel or what they need. Things will never reveal our selfishness. Never act as a mirror. And we will often sacrifice to acquire them, but it's a self-serving sacrifice that gets charged to the account of others. Got quieter than I thought it was going to. Somebody have a pin they can drop real quick? I just want to see. People, on the other hand, have needs and feelings. And to sacrifice for their good is always, always going to cost us personally. Always. But that right there, that idea, loving people and sacrificing for their good, costing us personally. Friends, this is the way of love. And it is a path marked out most clearly for us The trailblazer on this thing is Jesus Christ in his life and death. If we're going to follow him, that is the path we're called to walk. There is no way around it. And part of what we sang this morning about our delight being in him is is, is this, this great hope, it's this request of God that our desires around this would change. Not that we're being drugged down this path of self sacrificial love, but that we start to eagerly jog along it as we see the beauty of it, the joy that it brings. Amen. That brings us to, that was kind of a summary and a look at, at what we have contained within the first 10 verses, but there's a, 
There's a little pivot point here at verses 11 and 12. Can we look at those again together? Verses 11 and 12. Okay, so the deal is done and now the people around have something to say. All the people who were in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, it could seem that that's a bit of an aside that you could just skip over and continue as the narrative unfolds the the facts of the story, but I want to encourage us to remember that uh, all, all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for us. And that many times it's in little places like this that just under the surface, there's some of heaven's treasure buried and you got to just dig a little bit. Uh, but man, it's always worth it. Okay, so let's do that for a minute. The question I want to ask you is what is the meaning of this blessing the people speak over Ruth? Because to us, it could sound like kind of a little bit of gibberish and we don't really connect with it, but it meant something to them. This is a big deal in this little town. Okay, it's a big, big event. So it, it's a, honestly, this, the first thing I want to point out to you about this blessing spoken by the, the witnesses around is that it's a shocking turn of events, really, if we think about it. Because throughout this entire book, we have seen Ruth referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. Have we not? I mean, almost more often than not, if her name is written, the Moabitess is after it. Okay? This is Ruth from Moab the descendants of Sodom and bitter enemies of the Israelites, right? And we've been over this. I won't belabor that point, but this is the reality. And so now we have all the head honchos of the town at the city gate and the witnesses saying, may she be like who? Rachel and Leah, the mothers of the nation, basically. That's a big difference from where we started and how everyone was looking at Ruth. And here they're now saying that they hope she compares to the wives of Jacob who bore the sons that became the leaders of the 12 tribes that made up the nation. Okay? Now, I just want to take a moment because if you're new to learning the Bible, I don't want to leave you behind here, okay? We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? Jacob's name is changed to Israel after he wrestles God on the banks of the Jabbok. And Israel then is, that's, his descendants become the people of Israel. It is from his 12 sons that the tribes derive their names, okay? And his wives were Rachel and Leah. Rachel was Jacob's favorite and the mother of Joseph, okay? He was barren for a long time, but then the first son she, she gives uh, to Israel is Joseph. And if you know anything of the narrative of Genesis and the, the kind of the beginning of the story here, Joseph becomes a pretty big deal in the history of the nation of Israel, does he not, right? You know, kind of saves everybody uh, as, as Pharaoh's right-hand man, so pretty big deal. Uh, it, it goes on, though. Uh, she's also the, the mother of Benjamin. We, we also know that Rachel was buried in Bethlehem, okay? So this whole account with, with Ruth and Boaz is happening where? In Bethlehem, that's right. Thank you to the young ones on the front row who are paying attention. It, it all happens in Bethlehem. So Rachel is, if Rachel's buried there, one of the mothers of the nation of Israel, she's, she's a bit of a local celebrity in, in that way, right? So it's, 
it's a lot, I'm trying to get, get you to understand, this blessing the people speak, which for us could kind of be a one-off skim over as we continue with the story, this was a big deal. <laughs> this is not something they would say to just anybody, okay? So that's Rachel, Joseph's mama, buried in Bethlehem, local celebrity, but what about, what about Leah? And, and I just want you to know, um, I, I, I try to take cues from the, the writers of the Marvel movies, and I put Easter eggs in my sermon, all right? And uh, I just want you to know, actually, Brother Smith, raise your hand, okay? That man right there caught one of the Easter eggs last week, and he tried to catch me on his way out of here and get me to unpack it. And I just, I kind of laughed and giggled and backed away from him a little bit. So I didn't get into it, but there was, there was one last week because I was ripping off about all the gospel promises from, from Genesis through Revelation. You guys remember that? And I just, at the end, I just briefly sprinkled it in there, a little, little hidden thing, I mentioned Leah, and he stopped me after the service. He said, hold on, man. I knew about all the other stuff. He said, what's going on with Leah? I said, oh, no, no, no. I'll talk to you later. And I avoided him all week. And now we're here. <laughs> what about Leah? Do you understand, man? So this, the sandal exchange happens, and all the people, man, they are so stoked. They're like, may this woman be for you like Rachel and Leah, the mothers of our nation, Okay. And she's going to go on and talk, they're going to talk about Perez too, which I'll, that's, that, this all ends up linking together, okay? What about Leah? So, so for the, what are they talking about, okay? And then it goes even deeper than what they understood, but the people of that day, what did they mean by saying, well, I hope she's like Leah for you, Boaz? The people that day, the clue is in the, in the next verse because we, we see also, the, the, uh, they talk about Perez, right? So moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman, okay? So Perez also settled in Bethlehem, had a very prosperous family. It may have been, it may have been Perez settling there that kind of, and this isn't known for sure, but he could have been a part of kind of what built that area up to be what it became, right? Originally Ephra or Ephratha. He had a large prosperous family, and, and here's what we're told here. Perez's daddy was Judah, okay? Judah. Now, do you know who Judah's mama was? Judah's mama was Leah. Now, the people of this day, they weren't talking about that. As far as it went for them, it's probably that that this connection to Perez and he's a big deal for them and that traces it back to Leah and Leah's the the mother of some of the leaders of the other tribes, Right, she had uh, Judah was her fourth son. That's probably as far as they thought about it. But, but we we get a little more insight because the people that day didn't know it. But but the plot thickens and it gets way cooler because if you if you walk down the genealogical road just a piece, eventually there comes a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. In case you haven't heard that before. Okay, that's a big deal. They didn't know that. They didn't know that that was wrapped up in this blessing. But we get to see it. And it's even, this gets even richer and deeper when, when you think about the idea of gospel promises where I threw Leah in the mix last week. It's even better when you consider the history of that family because Jacob favored Rachel over Leah. Rachel was the one he originally worked seven years for. But his father-in-law Laban tricked him, Right? Ladies wore veil at, their, at, at the you know, face coverings at the wedding and he waited till it got dark and did the old set her up for the okie doke, right? 
swapped Leah in there for Rachel, got him to work seven more years. But what did that mean? Rachel was prettier, okay? Leah dealt with the pain. This is recorded in the scriptures. Leah dealt with the pain of being rejected by worldly standards of beauty. But she gives us one of the first glimpses in all of the scriptures into this gospel principle. Let me give you that gospel principle. Without the gospel, we couldn't latch onto this principle and believe it with any kind of real vibrancy. But, but the gospel is what shows us this clearly, but we see a glimpse of it in Leah's story. Here's that gospel principle. It is not what the world judges as lovable that matters. It is God's favor that makes us lovely. It's God's favor that makes us lovely. The Lord, how did, how did Leah end up knowing she had God's favor? The Lord opened Leah's womb and he chose her to give birth to Judah. Judah, who eventually run down the line, from his line comes the Messiah. She didn't know all of that. All she knew at her point was that she was being blessed with sons which was, and we're going to get to that here in a moment, was a big deal in that time. She saw God's favor in that. But that was where she ended up. We, we can see the beauty of Leah finding her worth and value and identity in her relationship to God when we consider this. Judah, her fourth son, she names him, this time I will praise the Lord. That's what the name Judah means. We see this turn and this change in Leah's understanding of feeling scorned, rejected, unloved. And as she understands that the favor of God is being poured upon her, it changes her, her vision, it changes her focus from what Jacob is giving her or not giving her and allows her to find her worth, value, dignity in the fact that God loves her and has showered his favor upon her. What is, how do, so let's, tr let's, Throw that forward to where we are today with all the information we have. How do we apply what I'm talking about today? Here's what it is. If we will accept the fact that Jesus has shown us how much we are worth by allowing his blood to be shed to purchase us, we can be freed forever from the lie that our value or whether we are lovable can be determined by anything else. Your value your worth has been set because the highest authority on the matter paid the highest price possible to have you. So no lesser authority gets to come and tell you, even if it's the internal monologue in your own mind, that you're worth anything less. The blood of Christ was shed for you. The case is closed. The price is set. The discussion is over. Amen. And we see the beauty of the freedom of that gospel principle. We get a glimpse of it in the life of Leah all the way back. And of course, and we're, this, I can't say too much about this because we are going to go ham on this next week. Can't, I mean, the sovereignty of God in this thing, this goes back, man. Do you understand? God knew about this little meeting at the gate back when Leah was crying in her tent because she didn't think her husband loved her. If you're not excited enough to squeeze something about that, you ain't, you ain't hearing me or something. Are you listening to me? That's the sovereignty of your God. Okay, that's enough. You guys are going to give, nope, that's it. I'm going to keep moving. This, that idea, okay, it opens the door for us 
see the major theme of this chapter, and it's really, it's, it's a major theme throughout this entire book, and that theme is redemption. It's a word we've said a lot. We've talked about the kinsman redeemer throughout, but let's park a minute and make sure we see this theme weaving and we understand what it is. The word redeem means to set free by paying a price. To set free by paying a price. Now, we've already trampled all over that ground today, right? But we're going to do some more, okay? We, there's, there's more juice to squeeze out of this fruit, amen? It, it's, it's, it's this idea, this idea of redemption, it's going to help us understand how, how we're reading one of the most scandalous statements you're going to read in verse 15. And, and for, for ancient literature, what these people say to Boaz, particularly about Ruth, if, if we were to transport ourselves back and be able to take on the cultural understanding of that time, to hear these people talk like this, you would have, you would have probably gasped. Ooh, right? Something along those lines. I toned it down a little bit, probably. Okay? And, and what is that? Look at verse 15. This is scandalous right here. May he also be to you a restorer of life. What's he talking about there? Talking about this baby, okay? His name is Obed, all right? But for, so, so she's talking about, they're saying that maybe that may the baby be a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, okay? For your daughter-in-law who loves you, all right, so let's stop there. Part of why these people know that Obed, the son of, of Ruth and Boaz is going to love his grandmama very well is why? Because your daughter-in-law who loves you, because his mama, Obed's mama, loved Naomi the way she did. He's going to be taught right about how to give honor, right? And how to walk in real love. So that's, they, they're talking confident about that, which I think they absolutely should. But then they go into talking about some crazy stuff here. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, that's fine, and is better to you than seven sons? has given birth to him. That right there, to ancient ears, would have been way crazy. Why? Why is that the case? Well, think about it. <clears throat> Seven sons is, is really, it's, it's kind of a, it's shorthand for the perfect family. Seven being the perfect number. And having seven sons particularly in the ancient world, this is still true in some places today. Sons, in terms of children that were born to people, sons were valued more highly. We're going we're to talk about how the gospel dismantles that idea in a minute. So don't, don't keep your feathers ruffled. Hang with me for a second. We'll deal with that, okay? It's not, it's not an idea. Clearly, I mean, clearly we see the beginning of the dismantling of this idea right now. Do we not? Ruth is better than seven sons. The Bible's got no problem with that being thrown out here. Yes? Yes. Okay. Why, why were sons prized so much? Some of it came down to utility. Okay? In this time, man, family was everything. The reason why the beginning of the book is so dark in its tone is because we got Elimelech dead, we got Malon dead, we got Kilion dead, we got Naomi too old to bear children now. For her... Her husband, her sons, through which the inheritance of the land would be passed, dead. She's got nothing there. 
She now doesn't have the, the ability physically to bear more children. Family, legacy, all of that. It, this, was, this was everything. And again, this is, there's, there's still cultures today where this is, this is much the case. And when, when you're trying to build a big family, when family's everything, think about how it normally works. A daughter grows up, and if she's going to be married, what happens? Does she tend to stay with her family and with her clan and work on their family farm? Or does some suitor come along and want to marry her? And, you know, typically in ba- back in that day, it's like, you know, three gold bracelets and a camel. There was some kind of dowry price, right? Okay. That's weird too. I'm just saying that's what people did back then. All right. <laughs> so I don't know, whatever. But the, the, the daughter, so if you had all daughters, eventually you're going to end up with an empty nest. But if you have sons, they're going to then, they're actually going to add to you because if they go and marry, they're bringing in more of a workforce. Okay, in an agricultural society, that's a big deal. Every set of hands helps. That's more barley harvested in. That's more chaff beaten off of it. That's more everything that you got to do to survive. It's how you build your little clan. That You build the strength and the legacy of your family. Plus, you know, there wasn't penicillin, so there was a lot higher death rates. People died younger. And so, it, you know, people, it, having a bunch of kids was really highly prized. It meant there's a good chance some of us will make it. Okay? And this, it, this wasn't just true 3,000 years ago. I mean, this was true up to 300 years ago and, and even more recently than that. I mean, who played the Oregon Trail when you were a kid? I mean, they got new versions now. I mean, the game, you know, you could die of dysentery any time. Just rattlesnake bite, wheel falls off the wagon, you're all dead, everybody dead. I mean, you know what I mean? You lose your clothes in a raid and, and you're dead, right? It's, just, you, there was, it's hard for us sometimes to connect with the way people did stuff. We're like, oh, that's so archaic, I hate that. Well, okay, let me toss you in a time machine and have you try to live on the very razor edge of death at any given time from multiple fronts, Right? Maybe you think a little different about stuff. I don't know. Possibly? Yeah. Maybe. Probably, yes. Okay, so let's humble ourselves a little bit. So, so, this was, so for them to say that Ruth, your daughter-in-law, is better than seven sons, that, that's like, you know, they, that wouldn't even compute. What the heck? How? How can, they, how can they say that? Because this would fly in the face of the way that they did things, thought about things. How is this possible? Well, it's <laughs> the reason they could talk like this, it's, it's really, it's the same reason that this book is named Ruth and not Boaz. Okay? There's really three redeemers here. One is obvious, one is less so, and the last is ultimate, and it's the one that the other two are pointing to. And I, I just want, I think honor should be given where it's due. I want to acknowledge that the first time I heard this idea of three redeemers being present in the book of Ruth was from Tim Keller. And I'm just thankful for his ministry and I want to say that. And uh, if you don't know, he's battling pancreatic cancer. And so far it seems like he's winning, but if you think about it, pray for him. Because uh, we need good, faithful old guys <laughs> to stick around as long as they can. Because um, it seems like the list of, of those is... <clears throat> getting less and less, but I digress. Uh, but that, this idea, it really, it, it unlocked, I, I liked the book of Ruth before I understood this, and now, man, I literally, I can't tell you how I waited this long in my ministry to preach through this book. It's, 
I can't, you know, but praise God, here we are. It's his sovereignty, right? Same principle we see running through this. So what are the three? Boaz is, is the obvious kinsman redeemer, right? The book tells us that multiple times. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who steps in and rescues Ruth and Naomi by making all of the wealth that was his, he makes it theirs by marrying the girl that no one else would have wanted. Another connection to Leah, right? Nobody else wanted Ruth the Moabitess, but Boaz did. The kinsman redeemer, who takes, he, he is willing to take all that is his, that these two ladies have done nothing to earn, and he's willing to share it with them and make it theirs through marrying this girl and thus rescuing them from the place of poverty they could have never gotten themselves out of. Ding, 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 right? Gospel bells, I told you, we're gonna ring these things so hard, you're gonna, you're gonna leave your hard of hearing, all right? Now, the second one's a little harder to see, but equally, if not more beautiful. Ruth, okay, was among many things throughout this story, but, but one of the primary things she was is she was an immigrant to Israel, right? She was a Moabite. She came, left her land to come to Israel, but she's a very different kind of immigrant to what we would normally think, okay? Normally, when we think of people immigrating, you tend to think of stories like uh, Ettore Boyardi, who came, he came through Ellis Island in 1914. He got a job as a waiter at the Plaza Hotel in New York. He worked hard, and he eventually was promoted to the position of head chef, right? This is 1914, okay? In 1928, he opened a factory to begin to produce prepackaged Italian food to meet the demand he saw from people for takeout meals. Ettore Boyardi. Anybody want to guess what the name brand of his takeout Italian food is? Chef Boyardi. We got some boys that have had some Chef Boyardi over here. Yes, sir. That's right. Ravioli all day. Amen. We know about that. Those are the kind of stories we think about, right? Or we think about Tom Carvel, who arrived in America from Greece, also through New York in 1911. He started selling ice cream out of his truck in 1929, and one day the, the truck got a flat tire. And so he's, he's frantic. He's trying not to waste all this product, right? So he's, he's, trying, he's trying as hard as he can. He begins, he begins just selling the, 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 the melting ice cream, but, he, but he's watching as people are eating it, and he begins to figure out they're, they're actually liking this softer texture. And so... Tom Carvel goes on to open a roadside stand and, and he goes down in history as the first person to sell soft serve ice cream. So if you like soft serve ice cream, you know, give a shout out to Tom Carvel on your Facebook page or something, okay? All right? Little did he know his name would be drugged through the mud by the ice cream machine at McDonald's so often and disappoint so many people, but... <laughs> Amen. I heard somebody say they should put a, McDonald's should put a flag up that they fly at half staff when the, when the ice cream machine's down. <laughs> oh, man. Lord, help us. See, that's our problems today. We're not worried about dysentery or, you know, everybody dying at 35. It's like, I didn't get my ice cream today. <laughs> Jesus, help us, please. Oh, all right. So we got Chef Boyardee, right? We got Tom Carvel. 
<clears throat> what do these guys and, and basically every person who's ever immigrated to another country have in common? And I'm thinking about their reason for immigrating. Invariably, almost always, the only reason you would do something as crazy as lift up the roots from your homeland and immigrate to another country is because they're looking for a better life, right? That's, that's the reason most people, whether, whether it's, you know, it's kind of a bummer here and I think it could be better there or things are really bad here, I'm thinking war-torn places or whatever, in any of those cases, the only thing really it would cause a person to do that would be a belief that if I make this big difficult decision and sacrifice, over there things will be better, okay? That's what most immigrants have in common, but not Ruth. She's different. Ruth left Moab expecting a worse life. And we know this because Naomi tried to talk her out of it. If we go back to chapter one and two, we see Naomi's saying, go back to your fathers. Go back where you will have a chance of having a husband. I'm not going to be able to have other sons for you. This is not going to go good for you. There's no hope if you come with me. This was Naomi to Ruth. This was not that anybody tricked Ruth or she didn't know what she was getting herself into. It was eyes wide open, making this incredibly difficult decision that most people would never make unless they at least thought, hopefully on the other side of the great pain I'm about to cause myself, there's something better. She knew in all likelihood she's walking towards something far worse. Naomi told her to go back to the protection of her people, the prospect of a husband, the hope of a family. Naomi said, don't do this, go back. But Ruth loved her mother-in-law, which is what these people just said. This daughter-in-law of yours who loves you. This is how you can talk about Ruth as being better than seven sons. Ruth loved her mother-in-law. She knew that her mother-in-law was too old to marry and bury and to bear more children. She was too old to work in the fields. And so Ruth sacrificed her future to go with her mother-in-law to Israel. She left the house of her father's knowing that she was moving into a, a place where she was likely going to be rejected and very likely die in order to do what she could to rescue a woman who didn't even think she wanted her help. Ding, 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 ding. This is the other redeemer. And both of the redeemers, Boaz and Ruth, in this story point to an ultimate redeemer. Forward to Christ who left his heavenly father, to come and to be rejected by the very ones he came to save, to die for us. When many of us didn't even think we wanted his help. And you might be thinking, well, man, are you trying to stretch to make a connection here? Come on, dude, I know you like this gospel stuff. Not at, no, not at all, not at all. Did, 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 maybe, maybe I'm overemphasizing how much Ruth was really aware of what was going on. No, no, there's no way, because when Naomi told her, don't come, you've got no chance with me, we saw, the, we saw the words of Ruth. We took a lot of time to think about what that meant when she said, where, where you go, I will go, and, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. Those are beautiful words. Those are powerful words. Those are words that people like to say to each other at weddings, but they normally stop because it turns a little dark here, because she didn't stop when saying, your God's going to be my God. She then said, where you die, I will die. And I will be buried there. 
and may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts me and you. Don't try to tell me Ruth didn't know what was going on. She knew exactly what was going on. And the love of God compelled her to sacrifice everything to serve her mother-in-law. And in this way, she becomes an archetype of Christ and better to Naomi than seven sons. Better than the perfect family. Better than the perfect family that humans think you can construct. Come on. God uses Ruth as a redeemer pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus came and accomplished the ultimate redemption for all who would trust him by faith. And now we are called to join in the ongoing redemption of God's world by following the love-motivated, self-sacrificing model given to us by them. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. And here, friends, is the part that is, this, <laughs> this is more beautiful than any Bob Ross painting could ever hope to be. Right here. Three of you know who Bob Ross is and you chuckled at that, so get some culture, man. <laughs> I'm ch- look, if you don't know who Bob Ross is, me telling you to get culture was a joke because Bob Ross is not high culture. It's the dude that had the microphone turned way up and he painted back in the day. You could hear the bristles on it, right? Yeah, there we go. Now you know who it is. He's got the fro with the squirrel in his pocket. You can put a happy tree in there. That's your guy, Okay. I need, I, need some, I need some kind of way to poll you guys better for my references because that, all right, anyways. <laughs> Don't start watching Bob Ross videos. You will get sucked into a portal and you will not, you will not come out. That will waste a bunch of your time, okay? <laughs> here's, here's, here's what is so beautiful. When we give ourselves over to gospel-shaped, self-sacrificial love, as a way of life, okay? When we do that, that's what, that's what I'm proposing you to, to you that Ruth did, gave herself over to the way of love, of self-sacrifice. Pointing forward, she, she did it before she had the example of Jesus, which is even more amazing. That when you do that, life is always far sweeter and better than anything we could have cobbled together living for ourselves. This is why those people can say something that would have been crazy to the ears of everybody listening. That this daughter-in-law of yours who loves you is better to you than seven sons. Seven sons was the best thing they could imagine. That was best case scenario. They're like, no man, you've, you've got something even better than that in this girl. Now let me say this. When I tell you that when we give ourselves over to this self-sacrificial way of love, that life is always sweeter and better, that by no means, and we see that inherent in this story, I'm not trying to tell you it won't be harder, but it can be harder and sweeter and better than anything you could have cobbled together for yourself. Do you believe that, friends? Think about it. Run that through the grid. It's true. Parts could be harder, but it will be better because... For creatures created to live in the light of love and service. We got to buy this wholeheartedly. We will never experience true joy dwelling in the darkness of pride and selfishness. No matter what it promises, no matter what it looks like, no matter what we can construct 
as the fantasy in our own minds of pursuing that way that's going to lead, we will not, we weren't made for that. It won't work. Square peg, round hole. It ain't going to happen. The only way we're going to experience the fullness of joy that a human can experience is to be wrapped up in the purposes of God, the purposes for which we were made, and have the light of his love not only shining on us, but shining from us as we do the great work of redemption in the world by his power, for his glory, but also for our good. Jesus accomplished the ultimate redemption in his death and resurrection. He paved the way for us to be agents of redemption in the world. Speaking the hope of salvation by faith and sharing the joy available to all who will believe and walk in the light of the love of our gracious Father. Praise God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you. As we reach the end here, (laughs) we're able to kick over even more stones, see even more of the treasure that you've buried here for us to find. Thank you for the redemptive themes woven frontwards and backwards, side to side through this book. Thank you that it isn't just Boaz. Thank you that cultural norms uh, do not rule us, that your gospel comes and smashes many things that we hold dear and think that are, are irrevocably true. Thank you that your gospel comes and rearranges the way we assess all things. It gives us new eyes to see and new ears to hear. Thank you, Lord, that we are not destined to be stuck in slavery to our own expectations and the little lives we try to build by our own strength, but that you have offered us the ability through grace and mercy to be swept into the life you provide, to the hope that you provide, to the purpose that you alone provide. Lord, help us to see that as more beautiful and desirable than anything we could ever cobble together. Help us to see, Lord, that you don't redeem us simply to bring us close to you, but you redeem us And you bring us close for a purpose to then send us back out anointed with your power to share the good news and hope with others that they too are loved by a good and holy and perfect God that there's hope for them too. Lord, help us. Help us by weaving these things deep into our souls, by writing it, inscribing it on our hearts. God, we ask that your word today would have the transformative power for us that you intended it to. Lord, help us not to just nod our heads at sermons like this and to leave here thinking, wow, that was intellectually stimulating. God, we don't want to just be information gatherers. We know that the power of your word is meant to transform us, to change us, to continually conform us into your image. And so God, we ask for your help. Help us, Lord, to yield completely to that process for you to do all that you see fit to do in us today. May you be glorified in this, Lord, because you're worthy of that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.com dot org